This is Attention Humans, the podcast of the University of Colorado Consortium for Climate Change and Health. Each episode, we explore the human dimensions of climate change with some of the leading experts at the University of Colorado and beyond. I'm Jake Fox. I'm Cameron Nicewander. We're your hosts for the show. It is our goal to help you, our listeners, learn about the health consequences of global warming and ask you to get involved in personal and political efforts to slow climate change. As always, please check out our webpage, cuconsortium.org slash podcast for episode summaries, show notes, and our comment box. Without further ado, on to the show. And this long line of cars is all because of you. Hello and welcome to Attention Humans. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Dr. Jim Crooks. In case you missed our previous episode, Dr. Crooks is a researcher at National Jewish Health with a focus on climate-related respiratory disease. And he spoke to us last time about the health effects of ozone and particle pollution. In this episode, Dr. Crooks will teach us a few things about aeroallergens, indoor air quality, and share his thoughts on how we can move the needle on climate change. On to our discussion with Dr. Crooks. Dr. Crooks, so... For a lot of people in Colorado, it's dry here, and uh, we get a lot of sniffles uh, during the allergy season. I've heard that that could potentially get worse as climate change progresses, but that, that's kind of a tough thing to wrap my head around. Can you walk us through that? Right. So climate change can affect, um, let's, let's focus on pollens here for a minute. Um, climate change can affect pollen in a bunch of different ways. It can, you know, the higher CO2 tends to drive plants to grow faster, and faster-growing plants like to produce more pollen grains. Um, so, and in fact, if you do um, field studies or experiments where you, you know, put plants in, you know, a little chamber and you expose them to CO2 and you count the pollen grains they make, the more CO2 you give them, the more pollen grains they make. Makes sense. Um, but they're more subtle interactions too. Um, a plant that is growing pollen in a high CO2 environment won't just make more pollen grains. They'll also make, um, pack that pollen grain with more allergenic proteins. And so if that pollen grain gets broken open, then there's a whole lot more allergen, sort of allergenic proteins sort of spread around. Furthermore, since we think ozone would probably get worse as well, ozone um, can weaken the pollen grains and cause them to break apart and release the, the, the allergens within them more easily. So there are these weird interactions between the air pollution like we normally think about it and also pollen as well. But you also asked about predictions about the future, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a crystal ball? I don't have a crystal ball. There, see, we don't have good pollen data in the United States, you know, good enough to really do this well. There's been only a handful of studies looking at predictions about what will the pollen look like in 2080. Um, and those are usually pretty specific to certain locations or to specific species. Um, the general thought, though, is that pollen seasons will get longer um, as the air warms, that pollen, pollinating species will start producing pollen earlier in the year and then continue later in the year, and that each species will produce more pollen. But in terms of predicting like how much more and how many more asthma attacks do we expect to find, there's only been a little bit of work in that area. That area. Okay. So I'm hearing we can expect, with more CO2 in the atmosphere, we can expect faster growing plants, which produce more pollen. That pollen is packaged more densely into these. Yeah, the pollen grains are, each individual pollen grain has more allergenic protein in it. Okay. 
and then potentially ozone will break these apart faster, thus yeah. exposing more people and increasing risk for asthma. But we may not be able to quantify that risk. Right. It's not easy to quantify just yet. Okay. I think people are starting to work more on that on that topic, but um, not a lot of research yet. Yeah. So I think a lot of people can can relate to outdoor allergies um, and experience, you know, especially in the spring as, as things start to come back from the winter months. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what happens when we go inside? Indoor air pollution can be things like tobacco smoke, people smoking indoors. Um, it can also be things like um, allergens that live in your ductwork or in your carpet or in your drywall. Um, now, the link between that and climate change is not necessarily very obvious, um, but there are links. Um, so, for example, climate change, as I said earlier, predicts that the air, warmer air will hold more moisture, so it will, there will be longer time spans between rainfall. But because it holds more moisture, once it rains, it will rain more, and so it will increase the risk of flooding. So you can get both higher risk of drought and higher risk of flooding because of climate change. Well, flooding floods homes, and those flooded homes become perfect breeding grounds for um, molds and, and bacteria that humans are allergic to. And so if you look at um, the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in um, New Orleans, or you look at other places that have experienced flooding, um, there have been usually pretty large measurable increases in allergies and asthma symptoms um, in the months afterwards. And even in houses that have been abated, where they've gone and cleaned out the, the moldy drywall and the moldy carpet and replaced it with clean stuff, those molds and allergens can, can persist in places that are hard to find um, and hard to, to mitigate. And so even in mitigated or homes that have been sort of fixed up, sometimes you can still see higher rates of asthma and allergies in those homes than in homes that were not flooded. Um. So we want to switch gears a little bit here and maybe talk about things that we can do to improve our local air quality uh, and really address climate change more broadly. Well, so the, uh, the biggest sources of CO2 emissions in the economy are, are transportation and energy production. Um, so the big things we need to do are <laughs> decrease emissions from those. And fortunately, if we do that, um, it will have the happy side effect of also improving present day air quality. So it won't just help people decades in the future or a century in the future. It will also help us now because it will improve our, our current air quality. So if you imagine um, replacing coal and natural gas power plants with um, renewable energy and with you know, battery storage for the evenings, um, will you know, decrease nitrogen oxides and the ozone precursors um, from those industries. And if we can make our cities more bikeable and walkable and we replace those um, gasoline power cars that we have with electric cars we can have fewer particulates in the air and again fewer ozone uh, precursor all those things would be beneficial to our health yeah and this is particularly important um, for us here in Colorado and in Denver along the front range of the Colorado Rockies we are traditionally fairly out of attainment and have um, pretty bad air pollution as it is. And so you're saying not only can we take steps to, to fix our air quality as it stands now, um, but these will actually help us benefit and address climate change in the future. Yeah. So those two things, you know, this isn't just about our great grandkids. This is, this is about us now. And, you know, we can help everybody at the same time. Like we can help our grandkids and we can help ourselves. So 
as a follow-up question, I personally don't own a power plant. Um, you know, I can, <laughs> I can ride. Don't? <laughs> no, I don't. Turns out. So you know, I can I can ride my bike. I can make dietary choices that may have uh, less emissions in the grand scheme of things. But who tells these power plants and these polluters to stop emitting or to use cl- cleaner practices? That's a great question. Uh, it depends on what state you are in. Uh, in Colorado, we have a public utility commission, and it is those people's job to oversee the electric utilities in the state. And basically, whenever a utility wants to change its power plant, like build a new power plant or retire an old one, they have to submit a request to the public utility commission to ask, is this okay? Are we allowed to do this? That means this utility commission has a whole lot of leverage (laughs) over the power mix. And in the absence of legislation from the state legislature, um, it's really the utility commission that gets to say what the utility does or doesn't do. Um, And so like here in uh, the Front Range, our utility is called Xcel Energy. They had some plans to replace some of their coal power plants with a mix of natural gas and renewables. Over the last couple of years ago, they had this plan. And there was a public comment period and hundreds of people showed up to the public comment period in person and testified before this utility commission asking them to take away the, the natural gas part of that plan and have just 100% renewable and energy storage instead. And the utility commission listened. And uh, that ended up being you know, the outline of the plan that Excel went with because the public utility commission told them, you know, this is what our state expects. Wow, I mean, that sounds like a, an actual real-life example of people... Uh, standing up and making their voice heard and actually enacting some tangible change. Yeah, and, and kind of cool. You know, it's it's great when a state legislature can pass a rule, but it takes a lot of effort to get the state legislature or Congress to pass a law. Like that's a really hard bar to clear. Whereas the rate, the public utility commission, they're making decisions about that constantly. Like every few months, they're making another decision that does something about climate change. And so there are, a l- there are a lot of opportunities pretty much every year for the public to get involved through, through the Public Utility Commission uh, public comment period. That's a, that's a phenomenal example of, of something that has recently happened of people showing up uh, to invoke change and, and to have a say on climate change and their air quality. Um, we like to give our listeners you know, a handful of tangible things that they can do. What other uh, advice or actions do you have for them to act on climate change? Oh, that one's my favorite because nobody's ever heard of it. <laughs> but yet there's, it's sort of one of those, you know, it, it takes a bit of effort, but the payoff can be huge. Um, so I really like that one. Uh, the other ones that, you know, you normally think about like biking more and eating kind of lower carbon footprint food. I mean, those are wonderful, but it's hard to scale them. <laughs> you know, you sort of have to convince people who are driving cars not to run you over and convince other people like I'm not just being the um, self-righteous vegetarian, (laughs) you know, I'm the very non-self-righteous vegetarian in case you're curious. So, I mean, those are all great ideas, but it's hard to find something that really scales well, where one person can make an impact outside of what they themselves do. One thing that I have, we, my wife and I have done is we actually got an electric car four months ago and uh, we just give people test drives in it. And people love it. <laughs> like, people are like, this is an amazing car. And I'm like, I know, this is really an amazing car. You should buy one next time. 
those are kind of uh, individual level efforts or actions we can take uh, against climate change. You know, in addition to maybe showing up at a public comment period or testifying in front of a legislative committee, are there any other ways that individuals can get involved in, say, the policy process that affects climate change? So the EPA, when it sets out to write a new regulation or to change a current regulation, um, there is always an extensive public comment period, usually two to three months long, uh, where you can submit online comments. And sometimes they have even public hearings where you can go in person and speak, though usually not here in Colorado. Now, when most people have interacted with that system, assuming you've interacted with it at all, it's usually because you are on a mailing list for some sort of advocacy organization that says, hey, add your name to this public comment that we're going to submit. And so the EPA, you know, for a high-profile rule change, will get hundreds of thousands of comments, 98% of which are going to be form letters by people who've just signed their name to something that someone in an advocacy organization wrote for them. Those don't have a huge amount of impact. It's far more impactful for you to write your own letter because then it, it seems like you are really putting in the effort and you really care about this. And in fact, if you have some sort of training or personal experience that is relevant to that rule change, like you are a scientist and you understand the science behind it, or you are in a community that's going to be affected by the rule change, pulling in that personal angle, cashing in your credibility as a professional, um, those things make a big difference. Those comments written by people who really know what they're talking about or who are personally impacted, those comments are the ones that really get noticed a lot more. And then sometimes EPA still ignores them, and that's fine, but <laughs> that's just how it works. But those have a bigger impact because what happens is once you write these comments, they go into the public record, and then after the rule is set, there's going to be litigation. Either industry is going to sue EPA or environmental groups are going to sue EPA or both. And those groups are, need arguments to use to um, say that the rule is wrong. And one thing you can do as you're writing your comment is to give ideas for legal arguments to those lawyers who are someday going to be litigating it. Um, and so there's to write one of those public comments well takes a little bit of practice, um, but there's resources online that can teach you sort of the basics of how to construct one of those public comments to make it most effective to um, <laughs> the future litigation that will certainly come about. Certainly if you're... Uh, an expert or the field that you work in is, is of particular relevance to a rule by EPA. It's helpful to write a comment. But you're saying, really, even if you live in a community uh, or an area that, that stands to be impacted or, or disproportionately impacted by a rule change or something as, as obtuse as climate change, uh, it's helpful just simply to write in on your own. Yes, and um, far more helpful to write in on your own than to write a form letter. Certainly more helpful to write a form letter than to do nothing. And most helpful is to write a well-informed comment um, where you really, you can call upon your own expertise or call upon your own personal experience. You, know, you mentioned something I, I wanted to follow up on. So, you know, when the EPA seeks to make a rule change, uh, you said that it just invites this storm of litigation that presumably slows things down. I, I was curious, in your experience in the EPA, are their regulations effective at changing um, environmental factors, you know, levels of pollution, um, are they effective at regulating industry, so on and so forth? 
Oh, very much so. Um, particularly in the air quality regime, there are uh, six air pollutants that called criteria air pollutants that the EPA is uh, required by law to regulate. In the past, since the last time the Clean Air Act was updated in 1990, um, all of those air pollutants have decreased. Their ambient concentrations have gone down, some by huge amounts. Like, we don't talk about airborne lead anymore. It's just not a thing that we worry about because we've done a really good job regulating it. Um, you know, other chemicals or other kinds of air pollution like ozone, which does have some natural sources, um, harder to regulate, um, but those concentrations have still gone down. Uh, an air pollutant like sulfur dioxide, which is primarily primarily emitted by coal burning, that's gone way, way down because we um, the regulations have required power plants and steel mills that use coal burning um, to put emissions control technology. And so sulfur dioxide has dropped by, I forget exactly what the percentage is, but it's probably more than 50% in the last 30 years because of those rules. Those changes would not have happened in the absence of those rules. And in fact, you know, just based on population increase alone, if those rules hadn't been in place, you would expect most of those air pollutants to get um, those concentrations to go higher. Dr. Crooks is a scientist who interacts with and studies the realities of climate change daily. What gives you hope? What inspires you to keep working? Well, I have two kids, and they are 11 and 13, and uh, they're going to hopefully be living into the 2080s, and I want them to be able to look back and say, you know, my dad did everything he could to make sure that the world we have is one worth living in. So it's really having kids that has changed my attitude about this, um, not 180 degrees, because I was already kind of engaged on the topic, but the, you know, it's having kids that have made me really, really engaged in this topic. Not sure that's so much giving hope as giving me purpose. And uh, to me, that's at least as important. Is there anything else you would ask of your fellow scientists, of your fellow citizens to help in this effort? Talk about it, even with people who don't like to hear about it. Um, I mean, make sure you know your audience, you listen, you understand what their concerns are, but finding what environmental issues people do connect with and then figuring out how climate change factors into that environmental issue, that's really key. You know, we should not be afraid to talk about it. You know, I feel like there's a stigma in some areas of the country when it comes to talking about climate change, just like in some communities there used to be a stigma when talking about HIV. That didn't help anybody. Silence doesn't help. But you can't just harangue people. You can't just badger people. You have to talk about it by listening first and understanding like where people are coming from and figuring out like what are their values? How do their values relate to climate change? Yeah, it's the ongoing conversation we're Absolutely. having. This is our experiment in it. I think this is this is great. You know, you guys should start a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else that you would want our listeners to know about, particularly surrounding air quality and health or getting into this field, getting engaged with the issue? You know, if you're a young scientist, there are epidemiologists and, and people in medicine who are working in this field, so find them and ask them questions. People love it when they get approached and ask questions. I'm not being sarcastic at all. Like, I love it when that happens. It's wonderful. Uh, people really want to talk, so don't be afraid to go and ask. Um, if you're not sort of a budding scientist or a budding doctor um, and you also want to get involved, there are a number of advocacy organizations with somewhat different emphases 
that you can join and get involved with. There's 350.org, there's the Sierra Club, there's Climate Leadership Council. There, there are a lot of different ones that you can... I'm on most of their mailing lists. Um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, one of our target audiences is you know, undergraduate students or other graduate students in the CU community. So, oh, I think, so I think it's really helpful for them to hear that, mm-hmm. ask questions, reach out. Yeah, no, no, people... I mean, scientists love being asked questions because we feel like we sort of toil away in obscurity <laughs> and, you know, it gets sort of lonely because we don't, particularly on a topic like this, like climate change, that if you go and talk to, like, your neighbor on the bus about it, they just get like, oh, I don't want to hear about this. It's too depressing. So the fact that somebody would come to me and ask me questions, oh, my gosh, that would just be wonderful. <laughs> at least your, neighbor, at least your neighbor's riding the bus. That's, that's great. That's, <laughs> that's, that's going in. <laughs> All right. Um, cool. Well, thank you, Dr. Crooks, for uh, sitting down with us today. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. It's been a pleasure being here. Thanks so much for inviting me. For our listeners, that is it for this episode of Attention Humans. Please check out the website for our show notes. Otherwise, we hope you'll tune in next time. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Attention Humans, the podcast of the University of Colorado Consortium for Climate Change and Health. We unpack the human health dimensions of climate change and emphasize the urgent need for all of us to get involved. We want to thank Dr. Rosemary Rochford and Dr. C.C. Sorensen for their mentorship on this project. Ellen McFarlane and Matt Cook for technical support. Cake for the jam and theme music. Our awesome guests for sharing their expertise. And you, our listeners, for paying attention. See you next time.